Let's pray together. Oh, Father, we take a moment to settle our hearts and minds. We've been enjoying conversation together, exchanging cheerful grins and greetings. But Lord, we come now to your word and we want to, with meekness, with humility, receive your word. So that means we open our hearts and our minds to you, to be taught by God, not by a preacher. The scripture to have its full impact upon us as the words of the living God. We want to hear the voice of the shepherd and the call of the Father today. So help us, Holy Spirit, now we pray in the name and for the sake of Jesus. Amen. In chapter 1 of Ephesians, we've seen that God... uh, had an eternal purpose in saving people. He chose us before the foundation of the world, gave us to his son to be our redeemer and ruler, and has predestined us to be remade in his, that is, Jesus' image. By the way, let me just stop a moment here before I get in more into this. Um, we seem to, there is no house rule here about how preaching goes, you know. And um, that is to say, you don't have to sit in silence when I'm preaching. You can kind of collaborate with me and encourage one another. Now, breaking off and having your own conversation about something else altogether is not what I'm encouraging. But, but yeah, if you want to join and go, yeah, you know, uh, hallelujah or amen. The Elim people, you know, which I joined in, I wasn't kind of raised in Elim, have this kind of, come on. I don't understand the come on. <laughs> like, what is that? Come on. What? <laughs> so that's more likely to interrupt me than help me, but, you know. Um, <laughs> if you want to kind of join in with us as we go, please do. You're welcome to. Now we're to understand as we go into chapter 2 how this salvation came to us. Eternally planned by God, bought by Jesus of the cross, you know. But how did it get to work in us? Our conversion was not a matter of our choice, though actually when, when, when salvation came to us, when we were born of God, of course we then made a choice. But God, by his grace, made us alive from the dead. Our conversion was not a good work that we did. It was his good work of grace and authority in us. We are his creation made now for good works. Now, our condition, before we became a Christian, if not, you know, we talk about in silly ways about someone becoming a Christian, oh, he gave his life. He did what? Jesus gave his life for us. You don't give your life to Jesus. So it's like, oh, I did a good... I I really gave my life to Jesus. I don't understand that. Here's the truth. God made you alive from the dead. You need some water. You're right. I'm going fine. (laughs) Here it is. Ephesians 2, verse 1 to verse 2. When you were dead in your trespasses and sins in which you previously walked according to the ways of this world, according to the ruler who exercises authority over the lower heavens, the spirit now working in the disobedient. You were dead. Now, you might not think you were dead. You think, well, I remember breathing and walking around and heart beating. We're not talking about you were physically alive or physically dead. You were dead how? In your trespasses and sins. You were dead towards God. You had no life from God and there was no life of God in you. You were dead. You were cut off. You were estranged. Now, a lot of people want to think to themselves, oh, I was was all right. I was a good person. The Bible says, no, you weren't. You may not have been the worst sinner on the planet. You may have been held away and restrained from doing particularly gross things. But you were dead in your trespasses and sins. The Bible here doesn't say sort of dead. It's as if you were dead. It says you were dead. And it was in our trespasses and sins. And those are two quite different things. A trespass is what breaks God's law. God's word says this and you break his law and that's a trespass. It's like a crime we say in England. God's moral law is still valid and is upheld in the New Testament. We're not under the religious, ceremonial and civic laws that governed Israel through Moses. But what God defined as holy and as sin by his holy law is still true. Hasn't changed. The sexual morality issues haven't changed. Lying. We haven't changed our mind about lying yet, have we? Lying's still bad, is that right? Yes. 
thieving, thieving is still bad? Yes. Then so are the issues of sexual morality that are expelled out in the scripture. God has not changed his mind on those. It's his holy law. It measures sin. Therefore, breaking his law is a transgression. But sin is more than trespasses. Uh, in Romans, Paul talks about, I see God's law, God's holy law, but I find another law that is at work within me. The law of, listen, sin and death. And it's like, no matter what God's law says, there's like something else working in me that goes, no, I'm not going to do that. It's like a different energy, different force or power. It's called sin. And sin is sin just because it is like that. It doesn't have to do anything to be sin. It's just an attitude of, I'm not going to obey God. Drives us to rebellion and disobedience towards God. And every human being is born, listen, a rebel and enemy of the Most High. We are not born good. How many times in a week do we choose what isn't wise, what isn't reasonable, what isn't good, because we think we can get away with it? We're cunning and devious and rebellious. Sneaky. That rebellion sits deep within the heart of every human being. It's called sin. I want to come back to two definitions of sin in the scriptures. I always like to come back to these. First of all, all have sinned and fall short of the glory of God. It's more than breaking law. You just didn't glorify God. You didn't even want to. You didn't want to intend to. Sin is everything that fails to glorify God as our maker and creator and ruler. That is king doesn't glorify him, doesn't honor him, doesn't respect him, it's sin. So to sin is not to love the Lord your God with all your heart, with all your soul and with all your might. Fail to do that and it's sin. That's how deep sin goes. Failing to really honor and glorify God in all you are is sin. And then number two definition Whatever is not from faith is sin. What doesn't come from a heart of gratitude and obedience and love for God is sin. Sin is everything that doesn't come from faith. All unbelief, all disobedience, all rebellion is sin. Sin is not just breaking a particular law. It's an attitude of heart. Enmity against God. Rebellion against his authority and rejection of his love. Notice this too. We were walking around, but we were walking in the way the world, the world, the world. I don't, I don't really speak estuary English that much. <laughs> the world. The world walks. You think, walking dead? Yeah, walking dead. How do we walk the way the rest of the world walks? We live the same way as everybody else, refusing to acknowledge, worship, and serve the living God. We love what the world loves. Money, success, sensuality, possessions, power. That's where our hearts were. We were ruled by the devil. You think, oh, come on, David, that's a bit much. That's what the Bible says. Yes. We were ruled by the devil. No man is really free. If you're captive to sin, you're captive to Satan. If you're part of the unbelieving world, you live under the authority of the devil. Notice where he exercises authority. The lower heavens. The devil does no influence in the heaven of heavens of God's presence. There's no battle going on in God's presence. But there's a battle on earth in this planet. And the devil doesn't need to walk around on the planet to make any distance. He travels through the air. And therefore, he's the, the, the rabbis used to call the devil the prince of the power of the air. That was their expression for him. And Paul uses it here. You see, our Lord Jesus rules far above from the highest heaven. He's above all angelic and demonic authorities. That's why when we say to, to some demonic thing in the name of Jesus, they have to obey, because he's higher, greater. Amen. Satan has no authority in God's heaven, but he has authority in this planet. We'll come back to that again later in Ephesians, but... He's the spirit at work in the disobedient. In some translations, it says sons of the disobedient. That's a literal translation. That's a Hebrewism. When you say someone's a son of, it means that's what he is. That's what he does. That's what he's like. It's his nature. He was kind of, he was born that way, raised that way. That's what he is. You're a whatever. So you're a son of disobedience. You're a son of 
Belial, you're a son of, 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 of transgression. On the other hand, you can be a son of God. You can be a son of Abraham. It's what you're born to. It's what you've been reborn to in those two cases. It's not a comment on your parents, except to perhaps our original parent, Adam, who rebelled against and disobeyed God. The devil led Adam into sin, and that same spirit is at work in Adam's children to this day. Let's move on. We, are, we too all previously lived among them, the world, in our fleshly desires. Fleshly is just fallen human nature. Not just physical desires, that can be mental things as well. But it's fallen human nature. Carrying out the inclinations of our flesh and thoughts, you see that? Body and mind. And we were by nature children under wrath, sons of wrath. Born to it. That's our nature. As the others were also. Whatever we felt or thought we did, we didn't question whether that was good or God-honoring or healthy or wise. We lived by the mantra of the 70s or was it the 80s? If it feels good, do it. That's a good way to get yourself to hell. God-honoring, no, not interested. We did whatever we thought would give us even a moment's thrill or pleasure. And we had no consideration of, of the consequences, the payback for our decisions and our actions. You see, God's written a law which, define, which, which runs through the universe. What you sow, you will reap. Yes. The thing you put your hand to, the thing you invest your time in, will give you a payback. But we lived, by the way the world thinks, oh, no, 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 that doesn't apply to me. You know, I'm, I'm never going to face the consequences for this behavior. Oh, yes, you will. It's an unbreakable law. Paul writing to Timothy comments that a person who's self-indulgent in this way, just pleasing, uh, giving themselves to wanton pleasure, is dead even while they live. It's the same idea. Dead in trespasses and sins. What people talk about as their way of life is really a way of death. Dead towards God now with eternal death to come. We're by nature children of wrath. We think wrongly that God only gets wrathful, only stores up judgment for some of the things which are really, really bad. You don't have to do anything in particular to be storing up wrath. You just have to not believe in Jesus. If you don't believe me, this is John's Gospel. We know the first bit really well. Look down to verse 18. This is 16 to 18, sorry. More of it than 16. For God loved the world in this way. He gave his one and only Son so that everyone who believes in him will not perish but have eternal life. For God didn't send his, world, his Son into the world that he might condemn the world, bring the judgment day then, but that the world through him might be saved through him. Anyone who believes in him is what? Not condemned. Listen now. But anyone who does not believe is already condemned because he has not believed in the name of the one and only Son of God. All the world is condemned. The only way out of that state of being condemned is faith in Jesus. You don't get into being condemned, you are condemned. It's getting out of condemnation that's the issue. The issue is faith in Jesus. Not good works, which, by the way, aren't good works. Our fallen nature makes us this. We don't become fallen sinners, we're born fallen sinners. We don't become children of wrath, we're born children of wrath. We're born into sin and condemnation and need to be rescued from that condition and state. And Paul in Romans 3 raised the Old Testament for quotations and puts together this summary of human condition, the misery that is simply being a naturally born, naturally living human being. I'm going to read more of it than what I've put up there. What then? Are we any better? Not at all. We've previously charged that both Jews and Gentiles are under sin. As it is written, there is no one righteous, not even one. There is no one who understands. There is no one who seeks God. All have turned away. All alike have become useless. There is no one who does what is good, not even one. 
Their throat is an open grave. They deceive with their tongues. Vipers' venom is under their lips. Their mouth is full of cursing and bitterness. Their feet are swift to shed blood. Ruin and wretchedness are in their paths. The paths of peace they have not known. There is no fear of God before their eyes. That's not speaking about some criminal class of the community. That's speaking about everybody who's born a son of Adam or son or daughter of Adam. Outside of Jesus, we are, get it, the walking dead. So let me give you this headline before we go any further. Christianity is a matter of life and death. It's that serious. To become a Christian is not to add some faith or blessing to your way of life. It's to pass from death into life. An altogether new life. Some people preach the gospel like it's about life enhancement. Your life will be better if you're a Christian. Listen, life is, Christianity and the gospel is not about life enhancement. It's about life replacement. Trading in a dead, old, wretched life for a new life. It's not about heart restoration, it's about heart transplantation. Ezekiel says that one of the prophets, one of the prophecies of the new covenant is, I will give you a new heart and a new spirit within you. Let's move on into verse 4. Verse, we've got to get to verse uh, 10. <laughs> Grace, our conversion, made alive in Christ Jesus. But God... Now, I'm not going to do what Dr. Martin Lloyd-Jones did and preach for some weeks at a time on just those two words. But God, you, you know, it's, but it is that important. We were dead in trespasses and sins. That was our condition. But God. Not, oh, but we got a good idea. Well, we, I, I think I've become a Christian then. No. God did something. God, who is rich in mercy because of his great love that he had for us, made us alive with the Messiah, even though we were dead in trespasses. You are saved by grace. You didn't make up your mind. You didn't decide. You didn't think it was a good idea. God made you alive. You wouldn't have seen it unless he'd opened your eyes. You wouldn't have got it unless he gave it to you. Saved entirely by the sovereign grace of God. I'm getting excited. <laughs> we saw this at the end of chapter 1. Firstly, God had mercy and love towards us. Now, if we call his mercy and love, if I may say it this way, something like his affection or emotion. Here in chapter 2, we see how that was turned into real, real action. God did something in his mercy. He made us alive with the Messiah, even though we were dead at that time in our trespasses. Paul argues that in bringing us to faith in Jesus, God has something by his power, by his authority, which is equal to, must be compared to, when Jesus was raised from the dead and <coughs> boosted into the heavens and sat in the throne of God. It's that important. When God made you alive, it was just like God raising his son from the dead. It makes that comparison. It's, so, it's incredible. It's so powerful. You think, that can't be true about me. Yes, it is. You have been raised to life in Jesus Christ from being dead in trespasses and sins, just as God raised his son from the dead. He saved us by his grace. And if I may talk again about the wisdom and the power and the love of God, which we already saw in chapter 1. He planned it in his great wisdom. He brought it into being at the cross through his great love. And he accomplishes that in us by his great power. The power that raised Jesus from the dead is the power that's at work in us. We sing that and we decide to believe it. Let's review what saved me. Thinking about what we just read in, chapter, in verse 1 to 3. We are saved from death. The good news is preached to dead people. And I, I, I could have a bit of fun. I haven't got a lot of time to do this, but I, you know, I, I could pretend to be a corpse on the ground and get someone to say, David, Jesus loves you. You need to get up and be a Christian. And I'm... You can say what you like to me. I'm dead. The only reason you come to faith is that God made you alive. So you could respond. 
Jesus called to dead Lazarus, but only the power of God could make Lazarus hear and breathe and come out of the tomb. Lazarus, come out. He can't do it. He's dead. But God made him alive. That's exactly how it is for us when we are born of God. Right now, the Son of God calls dead people to life through the gospel. Here's it is from John 5. Long time since we preached preached through John's gospel. Let me tell you again. Jesus says, I assure you, anyone who hears my word and believes him who sent me has eternal life. You've become alive in God and to God. God's life is in you. God's eternal life. And will not come under judgment, but has passed from death to life. I assure you, an hour is coming and is now here. Jesus is saying, this is what's happening right now. And it's still happening today. Dead people hear the voice of the Son of God, and those who hear live. It's happening today. Now. People who hadn't a clue, who were dead, wandering around like everybody else in the world, like the walking dead, suddenly they see the truth of the gospel. How did that happen? Because God makes them alive. Just as a father has life in himself, so also he's granted to the son to have life in himself. And he's granted him the right to pass judgment because he's the son of man. Don't be amazed at this. Jesus now talks about the resurrection of the dead at the last day. A time is coming, not is now, but will come. When all who are in the graves, he's speaking about literal, physical resurrection from the dead now. All who are in the graves will hear his voice and come out. Those who have done good things to the resurrection of life. Those who have done wicked things to the resurrection of judgment. Those made alive through the gospel of Jesus, born again, born of God, now will be raised to eternal life then. Without one failure, without one missing. But those who do not believe now have no eternal life to come. They'll be raised to a second death, to eternal death. So we're saved from sin. Not just from the penalty of sin, the debt, the guilt, the shame, but from the power of sin, the rule of sin. That's the teaching of Romans, that those who receive God's grace are empowered to live a new life which overcomes, which kills sin. They're no longer slaves of sin, they're slaves of God and of righteousness, empowered to live a new way. So here it is, Romans 6, verse 6 to 7. We've moved from being dead in sin, sorry, Yes, we've moved from being dead in sin to dead to sin. And we're to take on that way of thinking. I'm no longer what I was. I'm no longer alive to that. I'm alive to God now. Since Christ has died for us, we died with him. And when we bury people in baptism in water, we declare and demonstrate that what we believe, this person is now dead to their old life. And they're raised to a new life. To live righteously by the grace of God through Jesus Christ. For we know that our old self was crucified with him in order that sin's dominion over the body may be abolished so that we may, may, may no longer be enslaved to sin since a person who has died is freed from sin's chains or claims. We're saved from the world. Jesus himself tells us in John 14 through 16 that we, if we belong to him, we no longer belong to this world. And in fact, the world will not like us very much since we now belong to him and we're no longer like them. He prays in John 17, that magnificent prayer of Jesus. When people say, we should pray like this and pray like that, say, let me see how Jesus prayed. I think I'll take that as a model, thank you. Scripture warns us, sorry, he prays that we will be, though we won't be taken out of the world yet, of course, you know, last day that will happen. Right now we're living in this world, but the Father will keep us in this world, protect us while we live in this world. Jesus prays for that. Scripture warns us not to love the world or the things that are in the world. And to paraphrase those three things, they are the appetites of human nature, the appetites of our eyes. You see, you want. And personal pride and greed. Save from the world. You're a bit quiet on that one. (laughs) Save from the rule of Satan to the kingdom of Jesus. Let me get that to you from Colossians. I'll tell you before, Colossians is a parallel letter to Ephesians. You find the same thing said, slightly different way around, slightly different order, but it's a very, very parallel letter. Colossians 1.13. He, God, has rescued us from the domain of darkness and transferred us into the kingdom of the Son whom he loves. You've been rescued from the kingdom of Satan. Amen. And brought into the kingdom of Jesus. 
That's why the gospel is the good news of the kingdom. His kingdom's come. His kingdom is available. We're saved from slavery to the flesh, body and mind, to the human nature. And again, Colossians spells that out some more. Once you were alienated and hostile in your minds because of your evil actions, but now he has reconciled you by his physical body through his death to present you holy, faultless and blameless before him. You're rescued from slavery, from the minion of fallen human nature. Through the indwelling Holy Spirit, we get to choose to handle ourselves and to handle life, to deny ourselves things that are inappropriate, to reject thoughts and filter feelings. We do not live as merely natural or animal beings, but as spiritual people, people who have the Spirit to help us. And we're free to choose to say no to things by the grace of God. Paraphrasing Titus 2 there. We're saved from condemnation and wrath. We're no longer under condemnation, Romans 8, verse 1. We are not hell-bound. Yet the Lord deals with us at times and brings correction to us and disciplines us because he loves us as a good father. Right? And if you know something of what the Bible does call the judgment of God in life, don't think he's condemning you. He's saving you from condemnation yes. by, his, by his fatherly discipline yes. and correction. God has done all of that, all of that in his mercy because of his great love that he had for us. That's the size of his love. You see, love is not with God is not just affection or a feeling. It comes with action. He has acted powerfully in his great love to rescue us from being dead. You are saved by grace. Not because of anything you've done, in fact, despite all you've done. Grace in Bible language is more than intention, it includes action. We are saved by grace through God acting in grace. This grace is often defined as undeserved favor, mercy, but it works from God's love through his power to bring us to not only forgiveness for our sins, but power to fight sin. Grace brings us cleansing and change, forgiveness and freedom, pardon and power. That's the measure of grace. Like Jesus, we're not just raised from the dead, but raised to heaven. Verse 6 and 7, together with Christ Jesus, when God raised Jesus from the dead and exalted him to the throne of Godhead. Oh, look at that. We all, he also raised us up and seated us in the heavens. What? People say, oh, that's cool. I think that's hot. So that in the coming ages he might display the immeasurable riches of his grace through his kindness to us in Christ Jesus. We're already children of God. We're already citizens of highest heaven. Of course we still live on earth in this world. But as I pointed out some weeks ago, the Berlin airlift, and I did that off the cuff and I got it wrong. The Berlin airlift took, in, took place in 1948 to 49 when the Soviets surrounded Western Berlin and it was President Truman who authorized the airlift that fed and supplied Berlin for about 18 months, 1948 to 1949. We are a bit like West Berlin. We are in this world, in some senses, certainly in terms of our spiritual enemies, the, 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 the fallen angels and, and, uh, and the devil, surrounded by enemies, and yet we are supplied from above. We're supplied by heaven. Amen. Our citizenship is there. There's also something here to learn about our perspective. You know, you ask someone how they are. I'm all, I'm all right under the circumstances. Um, this verse tells you, get out from under the circumstances. That's not where you sit. That's not where you live. You're seated in the heavenly places in Christ Jesus. And when you begin to think about that, your privilege, your calling, your inheritance, what God thinks of you, then you can, like, date, like Paul does, talking about his sufferings in life. These momentary light troubles are nothing to be considered with that. These are, just, these are just little stuff, little stuff, little stuff, yeah. So there's a summary, we'll get there. Salvation is the gift of God. You are saved by grace through faith. God enables us, quickens us, makes us alive, so by faith we then relate to him. 
we trust him. We take him at his word. We start to believe his word. And we respond to that by, by prayers of confession, and repentance, and acknowledgement, and so on. And so we be, then know we'll be receiving God's gift. How, that process of faith, which is a bit like the, the roadway or the, or, or, or the pipe that connects us to God and God's grace. It, it didn't, we don't make the faith. We don't construct the faith. God supplies the faith. It's God's gift, not from works, so that no one can boast. And I remember being in a meeting one time and somebody started to pray, oh, we're, we're so proud that we, we believed in you and trusted you, Jesus. I wanted to go, no! <laughs> I didn't want to cause a great offence, but I thought, that's ridiculous. We are so proud of our faith. No one can boast. It's a gift. You boast in the kindness of the giver, not in the size of your faith. There's a horrible boastfulness of bad faith, which is a horrid thing. God equips you with faith. God gives you faith. Faith is not a work, it's God's gift. So boasting excludes all that we are, all that we have, any good we accomplish, is by the grace of God through a faith that he supplies. His wisdom, power and love towards us at work in us. Then it says, for we are his creation. Where, where his next big deal, he made creation and um, man through his disobedience, rebellion, brought creation to an awful fall. The whole creation is now under groaning and, and, and travail and trouble and creation isn't what it should be and the animal kingdom doesn't work the way it should do and you know, you don't have to, you have to grow good crops, you know, you don't have to tell weeds to grow, they just do. Why? Because we're in a fallen creation, because we fell. But where is new creation? Created in Christ Jesus for good works, which God prepared ahead of times so that we walk, would work, walk in them. The course of this new life is good works, prepared beforehand by God. So it's not like, I'm going to really notch my good works up today. I'm going to impress somebody. I'm, God's given you the good works ahead of you. You just need to not, not fall over them. You, know? you need to see, them. oh, okay, there's another one. Oh, there's another opportunity. God's making the opportunities. He's, he's planned it ahead of time. You just have to walk in them. Obeying his instructions, following his directions. We walk his way by his word and his wisdom. Now I've kind of rattled through that a bit because I now want to take a moment or two more on this last section. Walk. That's a pretty... We have, as in this country, a bit like that. There's something like that in America and other places. You know, the, the man is kind of the blink, blink, walk. I like the word walk. Uh, before Carol married me, I'll put it that way. She was very kind and kindly. <laughs> um, <laughs> it was an act of grace, but we won't go to um, I was quite keen on running. used to run quite a lot. Uh, but now I'm not so fond of running, but I can walk. <laughs> Briskly, purposefully. Walking is about going forward. Have you ever noticed how management people and politicians say, uh, we're going to be doing this going forward. I think, what do you mean going forward? You can't do anything else. That's a redundant expression, isn't it? Going forward. I don't know anybody yet who couldn't live backward in time. You can only forward in time. But the issue is, are you going forward in direction? You can't but go forward in time, but are you going forward in terms of progress? You go forward to something. The problem is this. You will not go forward well if you're constantly looking backward. In fact, bruised knees and, 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 and scuffed boots and, and holes in your trousers is pretty much determined by the fact that you are walking, looking in the opposite direction. You know? And the other day I almost walked into a lamppost because I was looking over that way. I, mean, I, just, I just felt the lamppost kind of just about hit on my ribcage. Stopped in that split second, I stopped. You know. You've got to be looking where you're going if you're going to go there. Jesus warned us of this. He said to somebody, follow me. Lord, he said, first let me go and bury my father. And Jesus said to him, whoa, listen to this. Let the dead bury their dead. But you go and spread the good news of the kingdom of God. Someone else said to him, I'll, I'll follow you, Lord, but first let me go and say goodbye to those at my house. It doesn't seem unreasonable, but 
Jesus said to him, No one who puts his hand to the plow and looks back is fit for the kingdom of God. And then further on in Luke's gospel, Jesus said, Remember Lot's wife. Let me tell you about Lot's wife. Lot was Abraham's nephew. And when he and Abraham both had huge uh, flocks of animals and so on, there were too many to go around as one big tribe. They, they said, well, you go one way, I'll go another. And he said to Lot, you choose and I'll take the other direction. And Lot chose this fertile valley down in the Jordan Valley, down around where the Red Sea is now. And he went down there. The Dead Sea, sorry, is now. And he went down there and Abraham went, okay. So he took the hills and that's where he pastured his flocks up in the hillsides. Lot and his family went to a place called Sodom, a city. And before long you read about him living in the city. I don't know if he's got any flocks or whatever. Now he's got a house in the city. That's where he lives. And without going into the whole story, the time came when God was going to judge that city for its wickedness, its evil. And the Lord sent angels to rescue Lot and his family. And after some uh, delay and, and Lot not really kind of complying and cooperating very well at all. Finally, the angels are literally dragging Lot, his daughters and his wife away from Sodom, dragging them away. So as literally fire from heaven is falling upon Sodom. And while Sodom is being destroyed, Lot's wife turned around and looked at it. And at that moment, she became a pillar of salt. She died. What did she look back to? You see, you might think about it, well, what, what really matters in life? Her family were with her. Her family were with her. She had a life. But her home, her belongings, family possessions were back in the city that right then was beginning to burn with God's fiery judgment. Let me put it to you this way. Her heart was still in Sodom. So I say to you this morning, my friends, looking back on your old life will hinder you in living this new life in Christ. I know it. I've seen it. How many of you are drivers? How many of you have tried driving looking only in the rear view mirror? It's not good, is it? You've got to see where you're going. Moving forward requires looking forward. The scripture says that God in his mercy forgives our sins and doesn't remember them against us. But we, some of us, will remember our sins in a number of ways that are harmful to us. I mentioned two. First of all, we remember our shame and guilt, and we allow the devil to bring condemnation to our minds and hearts again, when we should be knowing, rejoicing in God's forgiveness. We know we did that, but we know God has forgiven us. Yes. We need to keep hold of God's forgiveness for what is really yes. our past. But then we can remember the past with some excitement, with some rush, and we get drawn back to it. It may have been sexual pleasure or the feeling of power or the love and use of money or the thrill of danger. But we remember it. And actually, remember as an English word is an interesting word. It means to put it back into your body, to remember it. Here's my members of my body. And in remembering, I'm putting it back into my body. Like I wish I was there again. I wish I was doing it again. Remembering. Here's a quote I got on the internet. You can't start the next chapter of your life if you keep rereading the last one. Let me talk to you about testimony and perhaps boasting. I've, I've heard some testimonies where the, what's went on in the past, the danger and debauchery is relished in detail. Right? Let, me, in fact, let, me, let me do this. I'm going I'm to be now for a few moments. A guy called Dai Llewellyn from Swansea. Dyer spelt D-A-I, short for David. In the East End, they shortened David to Dave. In, in, in Wales, they shortened it to Dye. My name's Dye Llewellyn from Swansea. Oh, I was a lad, I was. I was always on the boozer. And no woman in Swansea was, 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 was safe if I was around. And I was a useful boy in a fight, you know. <laughs> People all over Swansea said, you've got to watch out for that Dye Llewellyn. I was a caution. But now I'm a Christian. 
What does that say? What does that so-called testimony say? Those were the days. First of all, where's the shame about that past? You know, is, I mean, I've, I've, okay, I've, I'm acting it up, I'm exaggerating, but is, is old die repenting or is it reminiscing? Is he rejecting his past or is he relishing his past? Now, I've seen that happen. And I want to tell you to you again, you can't walk well forwards when you're looking backwards. You can't be getting on with the next chapter of life you've still rereading the old one. Romans 6, verse 21 says, So what fruit was produced then from the things you are now ashamed of? The end of those things is death. In fact, let me put what I'm saying to you here in a phrase that I've constructed. Remembering and reminiscing is not repenting. You see, as a preacher, I'd say to die, die, it's time to die. Your old life, which was dead, needs to be dead, and you need to be dead to your old life, die. Because you won't make progress as a Christian if you're trying to still hang on to that. What God does not remember against us since we're now in Christ Jesus should be treated by us as dead too. Our old man is dead and buried with no fond remembrances. And, and uh, one old Pentecostal writer said, you know, the way to do with the old man is to bury him six feet down, face down. The more he scratches, the deeper he'll go. Dead. Buried. We acted out in baptism. Died with Christ. Raised with Christ. Newness of life. Don't go back to the old one. In fact, there's an expression, the past is a foreign country or another country. It comes from the book The Go-Between by L.P. Hartley. The past is a foreign country. They do things differently there. And there's any number of books that have pinched that title. All right? The past is a foreign country. My friend, if you're a Christian, a child of God, saved by his grace, born of God, your past is a foreign country. You did, you did things differently there. We read it this morning. You previously lived in fleshly desires, worldly, willed by Satan. You now no longer live that life. It is past. You live a new life in Christ Jesus. We are now dead to sin, alive to God. And looking back will draw you back. You're not repenting if you're reminiscing. Let me just say another thing here too, because it's not all about things that we did. Some things that were done to us cause us great hurt and trouble. But if you dwell on what happened to you and don't find God's grace, you keep old wounds open. I'm borrowing an old Puritan phrase there. You keep those old wounds open. You need to find grace. You need to forgive. Let's leave that to God, whether he judges that, whether he forgives that, whether they become a Christian, whether they don't. That's his business. Don't do it now. Don't tell God what he can and cannot do in his grace. But for you, you forgive it and release it and find God's grace to close the wound. If we're forgiven, we receive God's grace and move on. What is dead should stay dead. What is back there needs to stay back there. We live a new life in Christ. Colossians 2 verse 6 there says, Therefore, as you've received Messiah Jesus the Lord, walk in him. Which bit of newness of life don't you get? This life is the new life. It has nothing to do through the old life. It borrows nothing from the old life. There's nothing good to carry over from the old life. Sodom is burning. Get out of there. Don't turn back. I want to show you a video, which is unusual. Oh, did we plug the sound in? Sorry, Colin. If you could plug the sound into my Mac. I didn't put the sound cable in. Thank you. Um, I can't unusually put a video at the you know almost at the end of the sermon today instead of up the front because I thought now, now you hear it in a different way. Okay, let's see if you can get this to play. 
Yes. to the Lord's table again today and uh, scripture says 1 Corinthians 11 let a man examine himself and so let him eat and drink and I want to ask you today to check how you look at your past with remembrance or reminiscence or with regret and with repugnance and repentance are you glad that your past is dead killed at the cross buried with Jesus yes. Yes. let me ask you another one is the door to your past closed or you're keeping it slightly open just in just in case Perhaps, sometime. My friend, do your repenting today, here, now. That is, set your heart and mind before God. You sit or stand in these next moments and speak before him who sees and knows all. Submit yourself to him. Confess your double-mindedness and your rebellion. Call on him for his grace and mercy and help. And set your course to walk in Jesus and with Jesus, in this new life, relying on God's grace, obeying his word. I've said it so often, we're very good at singing some, some things and it's time sometimes to face the truth of them. We sing, I have decided to follow Jesus. No turning back, no turning back. The cross before me, the world behind me. No turning back, no turning back. Make that a prayer rather than a boast today. By God's grace, Lord, help me to set my face towards walking in your grace 
walking according to your ways, not going back to old patterns, to old life, not digging up what is dead, not going back to a country that I've left, by God's grace. Have you been made alive by the power and love and wisdom of God to sing and say those words and words like those today? Let me just ask you very, very clearly, are you sure that you are saved by grace through faith as God's gift through Christ Jesus? Does that get a yes and amen in your heart? Yes, I know I am. Saved by the grace of God through faith in Jesus. I know that he has saved me. Please don't tell me about when you did this and when you did that. This should be a matter of heart conviction. By the Holy Spirit, you know that you're a God's child. And if that is not true today, please take some moments while we're praying, while we're breaking bread, to speak to the Lord yourself and say, I'm not sure. I I, I don't know what happened to me. I, I kind of made this assumption. Ask him. Call upon his name. Everyone who calls on the name of the Lord, he will say the day he calls you to faith, to life, to leave this way of death and to walk in a way of life in faith and obedience to Christ. Father, we submit our hearts to you now. We pray as we break bread together and as we pray for people perhaps as well. Your grace will continue with us. Grace that comes from your mercy and your love reaches us with power to change, to cleanse, to renew, to reform, to remake. Forgive us for diminishing that word grace to just you being nice to us, when actually you want to do something so powerful in us that it can only ever be described as being just like Jesus being raised from the dead and exalted to his Father's side. Father, thank you. We're saved by grace through faith, not of ourselves. It's your gift, not of works that no one may boast. Thank you, Lord. Do we have two people or four?